0: dominic long time no see haven't spoken to you for hours hi
1: katie how are you should we pretend we haven't talked for a while
0: we've got loads to catch up on we don't i know everything about your life and everyone's life i guess that's one of the few very nice things about this horrible time that we're living through i'm talking to friends and family probably more than i usually do which is nice.
1: Although I find when I speak to them, I mainly just we just talk about the virus or we talk about Skype versus Zoom. That seems to be the big conversation right now. Um, Have
0: you been Zooming? I feel a bit too old and out of touch with technology to do it. Yeah, I'm a bit intimidated.
1: Yeah, I have been using Zoom and I don't really understand what the fuss is about. I mean, I know we're very loyal to our European Skype machines. Anyway, I like the meme that's going around at the moment suggesting that the whole crisis was invented by Zoom because like, they're one of the only people that have seemed to be benefiting at the moment.
0: The only people that are benefiting are Zoom and YouTube sports instructors. But um, how have you been? How's your lockdown so far?
1: Uh, it's been fine. I can't complain too much. I've been trying to sunbathe on our little roof terrace, which we're very lucky to have, but it was only seven degrees this morning, so... <laughs> Um, sunbathing wasn't that successful. You're
0: going to be brown as a berry by the end of this, though. That's nice.
1: I hope so. Although I heard that in Northern Europe, you can't get any vitamin D from the sun until late March.
0: It's nice, though. I think it's cheering.
1: How's it over there in London?
0: I've been having quite sharp mood swings. And one good example of that is that I bought a jigsaw puzzle this week. Lots of people are getting heavily into puzzles, which I'm really happy about. My one is a thousand pieces and it's a beautiful Italian scene. And I have these moments where I'm like, I love puzzles. This is the greatest activity that has ever been invented. And then I have other moments where I'm like, puzzles are terrible. Death to puzzles. And I swing between those two things like really rapidly. Ah, I'm taken every day as it comes.
1: It's not the puzzle's fault, Katie. Leave the puzzle out of it. <laughs> Take it
0: out of the puzzle.
1: We thought it might be nice to do something a bit different this week and talk to someone else. The other person in our team, uh, Katz, our producer who you heard her voice once before in the Fisherman Goes to Brussels episode that was really nice. Go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But Katz has had a pretty epic journey over the last week trying to get back from Greenland and we thought we'd like to call her up and find out what happened.
0: Let's do that. Hello, Katz. Hi, Katz. Hi. Tell us what's been going on with you, because you were in Greenland, actually making a follow up to an episode that we made, but for the BBC this time. And then what happened?
2: Yeah, so I found myself in Greenland, and then suddenly the whole world shut down, all the borders were closing. And it's actually pretty scary to be stuck there if the disease does break out there, because there are four ICU beds, and most of the doctors in the country, or at least a significant portion, are Danish, and they were all being flown back home. Somehow I managed to sneak out uh, with all the Danes who were being repatriated. (laughs) They just let me on as well. And then I found myself in the Copenhagen transit area. So I wasn't allowed to leave the airport because the border was closed to non-Danish people. It was just like completely empty. It it took me like 20 minutes to find another human being. And it was like extra absurd because (laughs) there were these announcements every five minutes saying... Don't touch each other, don't talk to each other, wash your hands. Limit
3: physical contact, avoid handshakes, refuse cases on the cheek and avoid coffee.
1: Crazy. And was there any food?
2: No. (laughs) So the first person I found was a border patrol guy. And I said, I've been in airports all day. I haven't eaten in at least 12 hours. Is there any food? And he said, no. I was like oh shit and he just obviously couldn't do anything so I roamed around for a while and I actually found an automated Starbucks machine and all the coffee was finished but they still had hot chocolate so I ate like I drank like four hot chocolates to keep me going. <laughs>
1: How long were you there?
2: Um, I think it's 32 hours. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah,
0: Sort of like the terminal the film.
1: Couldn't you see the airport for having like imprisoned you and not allowed you to eat anything
0: i don't know it feels like a bit of a low move to sue the airport at a time like this well we're very glad that you've made it home safely
1: yeah i'm glad you're back in the same city as me even if we can't see each other
0: yay
1: anyway we better get on with the show what have we got coming up later
0: Uh, Well, we're not able to travel at the moment, obviously, so books and films are probably the best way that we can still travel and experience new places, and there are few people better to do that with than this week's guest, Kapka Kasabova, poet, travel writer, wanderer of the Balkans. Her latest book, To the Lake, takes us to the borders of Greece, Albania and North Macedonia, and uh, she kindly took some time to transport us there last week, which felt weirdly liberating because we're stuck inside.
1: Oh, There was actually some news this morning about North Macedonia and Albania. Did you see?
0: No, I didn't. What's going on?
1: That uh, these two countries that have been trying to uh, move on with their accession talks to the EU, it seems like Denmark, the Netherlands and France have dropped their objections and the negotiations Ah. are going to continue, albeit over Zoom or Skype.
0: Well, that's one good thing that's come out of this week. On which note last week's decision to replace our usual good week bad week segment with good week good week because of the extraordinary times we're living in uh, that went down super well so we're going to do it again here's good week, good week good
1: week Good week Who's had a good week Katie
0: Well, I'm not going to lie, it was a real struggle for us to find non-coronavirus stories to talk about in general this week. It is astonishing how this crisis has just eaten the news. If you'll allow me, I am going to talk briefly about something C-word related, because I am giving my Good Week slot to the skies of Europe this week. And that is because there's been a massive drop in air pollution Thanks to this otherwise completely devastating pandemic, the European Space Agency put out some satellite pictures of different countries showing concentrations of nitrogen dioxide, which isn't a greenhouse gas. So a drop in that doesn't directly help to reduce climate change, but it is a gas that contributes to breathing problems and makes it harder for people that have asthma and other breathing conditions like you and me, Dominic, to to breathe. Wait, you are asthmatic, aren't you?
1: Recently, it's been fine. We'll see.
0: <laughs> Fingers crossed. <Yeah. laughs> ah. Anyway, um, the space agency did side by side comparisons of what the sort of satellite view of these countries looked like in 2019 and what it looks like now. And it is crazy. So northern Italy, which is obviously usually really beautiful, but also really polluted because it's quite industrial and the dirty air gets trapped in by the mountains. This region has apparently seen a 40% drop in nitrogen dioxide since Italy went into lockdown on the 9th of March. And the experts aren't really sure yet whether that's more to do with reduced factory production or there being way less traffic. But Vincent-Henri Bösch, Bush, is the head of the Copernicus Atmosphere Service... That's basically the EU agency that measures what's in our air. He said that the satellites are starting to pick up the same kind of effect across lots of different European cities that are on lockdown. But they do need more data to confirm that this is a definite trend. But the same thing is kind of happening everywhere. If you look at the UK map, we only went into official lockdown on Monday night. But the difference already on the satellite pictures is like really startling.
1: Yeah, I think it's actually quite amazing if I was at all spiritual or thought that like these things had a message it it seems like really spooky that this virus that affects people's breathing and is bad for people with asthma has in turn forced us to change our behavior to improve the quality of the air and make people breathe more easily. It's spooky, isn't it? I
0: hadn't even thought about that. That's very layered. For me, it's all very obvious. And like, economy is designed in such a way that we make loads of stuff using loads of carbon and it's very polluting. And now we're not doing that anymore. So air is cleaner. Um, But yeah, there is a sort of deeper symbolic level to it too. I mean, this is all obviously very temporary because at some point we are going to go back to flying in planes more and driving lots and making lots of things in factories. But this does give us a taste of what would happen if, like, we transitioned to making things in a less damaging way. And that's pretty cool.
1: It is. And maybe people will get used to traveling less and fly a bit less. And (laughs) nah, it's not going to happen, is it? (laughs) Let's see. I'm already dreaming of, um,
0: yesterday we put on the screensaver of a beach, just to feel like we were somewhere that isn't our house or the park. (laughs) But... I think it would be nice if we did fly a little bit less, but I think afterwards you'll see people being like, let me out!
1: It's true, yeah. They'll be like, I deserve a flight. Flying is bad still, everyone. But uh, who else has had a good week? Um, It's been a good week for the human-canine Bond. Okay. Yeah. I know in some parts of the world right now, dogs are pretty much the only reason you're allowed to leave your house. But dogs have long been described as man's best friend and they've been involved domestically in humans' lives for a long, long time. We knew that already. But I think most of us assume that domestic dogs were mainly used for practical reasons, like hunting or guarding, until relatively recently. Well, There was some evidence this week from southern Spain that suggested our assumption might be wrong and, in fact, humans have had lap dogs for over 2,000 years.
0: When we talk about lap dogs, you mean silly, very small dogs.
1: I mean very small dogs, but I am not going to condone the use of the word silly.
0: Okay, sorry, that was judgmental.
1: So celebrities like Paris Hilton are famous for carrying around tiny little dogs, which is probably why Katie thinks they're silly. They are silly. And uh, Paris Hilton might think she's totally on trend. But if these archaeologists are to be believed, she's rather behind the curve. The remains of a tiny dog were found during a dig in Córdoba in southern Spain. And The remains suggest that it has remarkable similarities to modern breeds such as the Pekingese. The 2,000-year-old dog would have been about 22 centimetres tall and would not have been useful at all in terms of hunting, guarding or herding. No offence to small dogs.
0: You don't know that. They could probably catch frogs and things.
1: uh, Maybe. I mean, all we know that it could have done is looked pretty and therefore it's assumed that it was an ornamental lap dog. The archaeologists did some amazing testing of the carbon and oxygen of the remains. And I've probably just used the wrong science words there, but forgive me. And they found out that the diet of the dog seems to have been very similar to that of the humans at the time, suggesting that the dog may have even shared the food of its human owner. Very bad form. If oh, you're... no, but
0: do you know what, though? When there's a little dog, you know when you're eating at a dinner table and there's a little dog that's kind of like... Sitting right at your feet, looking up at you with sad eyes.
1: You're one of those people.
0: Little scraps, yeah.
1: You must make the dog owner's life a living hell.
0: Yeah, but it makes me a friend.
1: That's true. Um, There is one rather sad element to this story. Um, It seems that the dog died by having its neck broken. Apparently, it was not atypical during the time to sacrifice your pets to the gods. And killing them by their neck was an efficient way of doing it apparently. But forgetting about the horrific dog murder for a moment, uh, back to the history of the human-canine connection. There was actually more new evidence coming out of Europe's archaeologists on the doggy front over the past month. According to a piece of research from Luke Janssen's, a PhD candidate at Leiden University, the emotional bond between humans and doggies may go back as far as 12,000 years. His research looked afresh at some prehistoric remains of a puppy that were dug up quite a while ago in 1914. It was from a grave in Oberkassel near Bonn. And he claims that the puppy was sick for weeks before it died. And due to the specific disease that the puppy was suffering from, it would have only survived with considerable help from humans. Hmm. This graven Bonn was already significant for being the oldest example of humans and dogs being buried together, but his new analysis that stems from looking closely at the dog's teeth suggests that the connection between human and animal must have had an emotional element, otherwise they would have left the dog to die. One of the co-authors on this paper said, it probably could only have survived thanks to intensive and long-lasting human care and nursing. So the dog only survived for many weeks due to the warmth of the humans around it. So good week all round for the human canine bond, or shall we just say good week for dogs? Thank you, dogs. I want a dog with me here in Amsterdam, please.
0: That was a a very thorough roundup of dog news. Thank you, Dominic. (laughs) I was wondering, maybe given the shortage of non-corona news, we should have a new segment just called Dog News. It's quite
1: a good idea. Good week, dog week.
0: Good week, Dodd Week. Is that a good idea? Tell us your thoughts. Hello at europeanspodcast.com. The other good news is that lots of people are signing up to support this podcast on Patreon, which is incredibly helpful since both Dominic and I have lost some work this month and just a really, really nice thing at this very strange time that we're all going through. So huge thank yous this week go to Simon Tubb. Guido Vermont, Emily Gould, and Cassandra Hartman, who was already actually supporting us but decided to increase her donations, which is incredibly nice.
1: Yeah, thank you, everyone. It's really appreciated.
0: If you have a couple of dollars to spare a month, and to be honest, we totally understand if you don't at the moment, but if you do, you can chip into our fund to keep the podcast running at patreon.com forward slash podcast. Should we go on a journey now
1: with our minds? Let's do that. Our interview today is, uh, yeah, once again, a bit of a distraction from the virus Kapka Kasabova is a writer who might be described as a travel writer by some, but that is perhaps a bit misleading. Her work explores the links between geographies, both inner and outer. Her previous book, Border, was a huge hit when it came out in 2008. It won many awards. And in her latest book, To the Lake, she heads back through her maternal ancestral line and goes to the Balkans to write about two lakes, Lake Ohrid and Lake Prespa. She thinks and talks so poetically about geography and family, so it was really nice to take a moment from our isolation to speak to Kapka from her home in the Scottish Highlands.
0: You come from a long line of women who emigrate. Can you tell us
3: a little bit about your family? You know, my family are very much a typical Balkan family in the sense that the sort of serial emigration or generational sort of displacement in our family, particularly down the female line, which makes it especially interesting for me. But this is a very typical sort of Balkan pattern because of the displacements of people that have taken place in the last 100 years. A lot of families have that history. I felt it was time for me to explore that a little bit. It's obviously been a big part of my life. You know, I've emigrated as an individual. You know, I emigrated with my family as a teenager, which wasn't my choice. We moved from Bulgaria to New Zealand just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then at the age of 30, I made the decision to emigrate from New Zealand to Scotland. Displacement runs quite deep in the family psyche. And that's one of the entry sort of points for the journey that I undertook around the two lakes in my latest book. It's back to the maternal lake, as it were. My grandmother comes from Lake Ochrid and I've always been aware of this lake and its kind of otherworldly light, but also all its kind of heaviness in the background of of the family story. And it was time for me to properly return.
1: And to the lake, it kind of seems to defy genre. How, how do you define it yourself?
3: I do write fusion nonfiction. I'm very much interested in the shapes of stories and how they all come together and how narratives contain each other. But it's also simply what comes up from the region, it, what comes up from the direct encounters with people on the ground. This kind of narrative and historic embeddedness is very much part of the Balkan tapestry.
0: What kind of a relationship did you have with the lakes before you traveled to them as an adult? What kind of a place did they have in your childhood memory?
3: They had kind of quite a luminous place. You know, I grew up in the last 15 years of the Cold War and we would occasionally visit Lake Ohrid, where we had relatives because my grandmother's family had stayed there. She was the only one to emigrate from then Yugoslav Macedonia to Bulgaria. And so we would visit her family maybe every 10 years which really means that I visited the lake twice. I was aware of the presence of the lake mostly because of the presence of my grandmother, who was a kind of larger-than-life figure, very powerful kind of feminine presence in my early childhood. She died relatively young and she seemed to carry the lake in some ways, the way that we all carry places.
1: This theory of carrying landscapes with us and what our ancestors perceived from the geography as well, that seems to be central to a lot of your work. Is this a a theory that you've always felt growing up?
3: Definitely. I wouldn't even call it landscape because I grew up as an urban child in Sofia. I was stuck in this sort of city. I think in terms of geographies rather than landscapes and It's almost like I was born with a kind of geographical curiosity or a geographical view of things. And I was always drawn to atlases, maps, stories and poems, even in childhood, narrating journeys and geographies. I really like the relationship
0: there is between family and geography in your writing. Um, My own family are from Vietnam, and every time I go back, I, I kind of look forward to it as this kind of homecoming. And then I actually end up feeling incredibly foreign when I get there. And I wondered if this journey, if this experience of writing this last book felt like a homecoming to you or not.
3: Yes, it did. I think it was Salman Rushdie who talked about the exile's impossible return or the dream of the impossible dream of glorious return. It's an impossible return in many ways if you have been sort of displaced or removed from a geography, either in your lifetime or ancestrally. This is the case with me and the lakes. You know, these are ancestral lakes. I came to see this journey as a return, not only for me, but a kind of collective return, a return to the source.
1: And whilst you were researching and writing this book, uh, one of the countries that sits on the lakes actually changed its name because of a dispute with one of the other countries. Macedonia became the Republic of North Macedonia. How did you perceive this change? And do you perceive the other changes around of discussions around the naming of land and lakes and mountains and countries? What does the naming mean to you?
3: It had to be resolved because... It had been brewing for 25 years, but of course the story that the hinterland of all of this is much more complex. And I would say that this latest sort of shift expressed through the name change of this country is simply the latest expression of rather cynical power games by really greater powers, which have shaped the fate of the Balkans for a long time. You know, this, this name change has been very humiliating for the people of Macedonia. And it's the latest sort of instance of people not necessarily having enough agency.
0: Your work deals with conflict a lot and the history of conflict and how that shaped the present. But I know that a lot of writers from the Balkans get tired of the region being kind of stereotyped as being just that. Was it important for you to show this part of the world as more than that?
3: Hugely important. Having said this, I never set out with an agenda. So it's not as if I had a sort of grand mission or a grand project in mind. I set out to explore something that I have strong feelings about. You know, in Border, it was my early experience of living behind the Iron Curtain. So obviously I already had strong experiences and strong feelings about what hard borders do to people. Um, And in the same way with the lakes, The deep experience and emotion there came from my relationship with my mother and my grandmother. And part of that I knew early on was this presence of a conflict energy within the family, within intimate relationships, um, you know, mothers and daughters. And these themes were inevitably present, you know, how to deflect conflict, how to restore our original sense of peace, and the lakes are an embodiment of that original state. Of serenity, peace, and coexistence, yeah. Like other Balkan writers, you know, I have little patience for this sort of very entrenched and lazy, and I would say bullish cliche about the hopelessly divided, blood-soaked Balkans. So it was important for me to reflect, you know, the the, the complexity of what's actually on the ground and what's in people's families, and much of that is full of light.
1: You now live in the Scottish Highlands, a place you have now made your home. It's another region that contains lots of majestic lakes. Is that, do you think, one of the reasons why you feel comfortable and at home in the Scottish Highlands?
3: Yeah, you know, I'm forever fascinated by what I think is sometimes a mysterious connection between a person and a place. You know, the, the Scottish Highlands are beautiful and all these lochs are wonderful to see daily. But I think it goes beyond that, and I think um, for me, the connection with the Scottish Highlands also reconnects me with earlier childhood experiences of Balkan nature, mountain ranges and lakes, and moments of happiness. And it's also an ancient landscape, and I'm, as a writer and a human being, I respond to landscapes that I feel are stratified with human presence. And certainly all of Scotland is is like that. All of Europe is is like that, you might say. It's just that in some places you have to dig deeper. We
2: are talking
0: to at a time when our borders are in the news a lot. There's this terrible situation for refugees at Greece's borders. European countries are closing their borders because of coronavirus. Like, your work concerns borders so much. Like, what does it feel like watching that? Does it feel a bit like Europe is going backwards in some way?
3: Well, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) I think Europe is a very confused continent. I mean, the world is in a state of utter confusion and disturbance. And because I'm interested in patterns and symbols, it's interesting to see how it's becoming clearer and clearer to more of us how everything in the world is connected And how a disturbance in one place, sooner or later, catches up elsewhere. So, you know, for me, this virus is um, just a biological expression of, of a much deeper malaise that we're going through as a human community. And, yes, it's very distressing to see what's going on on the border of Europe, you know, Greece and Turkey. I almost feel as if those living in the more fortunate, wealthier parts of the world, such as Europe, need to experience distress and loss firsthand in order to finally understand what it's like.
0: To the Lake should definitely be on your list of lockdown reading materials. We've also been getting some great book recommendations on our Patreon group, which is extremely helpful because you, Dominic, seem to be using that group mostly to post pictures of sexy Spanish police uniforms
1: Hey, and lowering the tone. It was just once.
0: Raising the tone back up again. um, Some of our Patreon members have been putting some great book recommendations from around Europe on the group to kind of ride out the lockdown. The one I quite fancy is one that was recommended by Joanna van der Veen, which was How's the Pain by Pascal Gagné, which looks like a quite funny, dark story about a pest control worker. So I'm going to check that one out next, I think.
1: Also, maybe this is like a weird self-promotion, but uh, the opera that I was rehearsing and which we weren't able to perform because the shutdown happened the day of our premiere they recorded the final dress rehearsal and it's been put up online on the Dutch National Opera website and it looks quite good I watched it the other day and I was actually quite impressed I don't have a huge role and I'm mainly just in the first 15 minutes but I do quite a lot of voguing and yeah if you want to see what I do outside of the podcasting, then go and check it out. It's called Ritrato and it's on the Dutch National Opera's YouTube page.
0: Is this the one where you are dressed up as a kind of giant squid thing?
1: I'm kind of like some kind of sea creature, yeah. (sighs) Slash Piero slash Grace Jones.
0: I mean, who wouldn't want to see that?
1: Also, I thought I should let you all know that the Berlin Philharmonic who have this amazing digital concert hall which is like the world leading online concert hall. They've made their concert hall free for 30 days if you register before 31st of March so go and do it. I celebrated the birthday of Johann Sebastian Bach who would have turned 335 last week by watching an amazing staged performance of his Johannes Passion or John's Passion as we call it in the UK It's beautiful music but also a really moving staging from the American opera director Peter Sellers.
0: Um, Can I bring things back to the lowbrow now, please? Yeah, go on. My sister-in-law Ashley felt very strongly that I should be recommending Restaurants on the Edge, which is this quite silly Netflix show about um, reviving failing restaurants. And uh, we've both been enjoying it very much. It is very trashy, but you do get to go to some very beautiful places and that's what we need right now
1: oh that sounds nice although also kind of painful because all restaurants are on the edge right now <laughs> <sighs> As with Good Week, Good Week, finding non-C word related happy endings is getting harder and harder, considering that everything that happens right now is at least in some way connected to the C word.
0: And to be fair, it's quite nice that there are so many heartwarming stories related to the C word.
1: Well, I'm glad you say that because I did actually choose a C word related happy ending. Ah. One relating to hand sanitizer. Yeah, I was pretty happy to see that quite a large number of alcohol beverage producers are adapting their production lines to create hand sanitizer for frontline workers. Mm. Aberdeen Royal Infirmary's intensive care unit had a shortage of hand sanitizer last week, but very quickly, the Scottish beer company Brewdog started producing hand sanitizer specifically for them. Also, the Welsh D-side distillery announced last week that they would be adapting their surplus spirit into hand sanitizer and providing it to frontline and primary care workers. And in Ireland, Irish distillers, Makers of Jameson's whiskey are doing the same. And yeah, the list goes on. There's Pernod Ricard in France who are donating 17,000 litres.
0: I hate that spirit. Do you? It reminds me of old granddads. Not that there's anything wrong with old granddads. I just don't want to drink it.
1: Well, maybe it's better then that it's being used for uh, hand sanitizer (laughs) then. Um, But it made me happy to hear that all these distilleries are doing this very kind and helpful thing. And yeah, they're getting um, some free publicity out of it, but um, I'm going to swallow my inner cynic because this stuff is needed and in short supply right now. So there we go. Happy ending. If you see one that's not connected to coronavirus, then please send it to me before next week.
0: It can't be dog related though, because that goes in the dog news section.
1: Oh, that's true. It can be cat related though.
0: That's it for this week, but we'll be back next week because we aren't going anywhere. We will be here to keep you company through all of this. Through our voices and also through social media.
1: Yeah, come to social media. We are, I'm quite enjoying Instagram at the moment, actually. It's just quite a soothing place of people posting nice things and all the artists I like doing live concerts from their living rooms. But you can also come and check us out at Europeans Podcast. We're on Twitter as well at Europeans Pod, Facebook, Europeans Podcast, and we have an email address, hello at Europeanspodcast.com.
0: Stay safe, everyone. Wash your hands. Tell us what you're washing your hands to. I'm still not bored of that conversation, even though other people are. And call your loved ones. Have a good week.
1: Bye. Have a weird good week. Uh... Bye.